like the song, and I love the way in which that aligns with our text this morning. Boys and girls that are going to Children's Church, you are dismissed to Children's Church. For those staying in the room, we're going to be in the book of Judges, starting in chapter 6 this morning. Continuing our summer series, the book of Judges, looking at the broken people of their day and our day, and how God's promises are not broken. And I hope today's text can give you some courage and even some comfort from God's interaction from a chicken like you and I. By the way, I have no ideas why we call people that are scared of things a chicken. Um, I get that chickens are kind of scared of some things, but um, I'm not sure where that really originated from. But that is the, the concept here, is the courage and comfort from God's interaction with somebody that was a little bit scared, and for many cases, good reason, okay? as we'll see today. If you're using the Pew Bible, page 242 is Judges chapter 6. Last week, we ended by looking at Judges 3, 4, and 5. Chapter 5 ends with the celebration of God and his victory for his people through song. And if it was a movie, it could have easily been a happy ending, but this is not a movie. And the book of Judges does not have a happy ending very often. We can stop the text where things look good, but ultimately the book of Judges is about broken people and yet God's unbroken promises. Today, one of our characters, our, we probably have the, I'm going to say the se- second most famous character in the book of Judges. I think second. Um, our character today is Gideon. I think the most famous character in the book of Judges, outside of God, of course, is Samson, I think. So I think Samson's a little more famous than Gideon, but we do have both of those right up there at the top of the book of Judges. If you don't have a Bible at home and a translation you can read and understand, and that pew Bible is something that you can grasp and you can understand what it's saying, the language in it, the text size is valuable for you, be our guest, keep that, follow along, reading it throughout the week. This morning I'm going to read from parts of Judges 6, 7, and 8. I'm going to read most of 6, some of 7, and a very little bit of 8. I'm going to read a few verses. I'll pause, briefly explain, and then continue. Boys and girls, I'm giving you your boxes throughout. Adults, by and large, your stuff from the bulletin will be at the end, as we often do with narrative or the stories of Scripture. Judges 6, 1 through 6, to begin. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And those of you that were here last week, you're like, wait a minute, there was no again there? I think that the author of the book of Judges was just tired of writing again already because that is a reoccurring theme again and again and again. The people of Israel do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian for seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel. And because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel, no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come with their livestock in their tents. They would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted. So they laid waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. We got a new group of people overwhelming the nation of Israel, the Midianites. As a result 
of their disobedience. The disobedience of Israel, God is bringing punishment. He's capturing his ten- the attention of his people despite their faithlessness. God is faithful to his promise to bless them, but also his promise to bring punishment upon his people for disobedience. The picture here, though, is instead of the Midianites coming and staying year-round, they just come at harvest season. So they let the Israelites do all the hard work of farming the majority of the year, and then they just show up when it's time for all the good stuff. Okay? So everybody else plants all the food, they take care of the weeding, they spend the whole year kind of in the lean season working hard, and then it's harvest time, and they show up and they eat all of the good stuff. They just swarm in, too many to count, and eat all the good stuff, and then they leave. And the people of Israel plant and think, ah, that was year one, at least they left, we'll be okay. And year two comes around, and they've planted, they've spent all the year, and they're like, man, this is going to be an awesome watermelon. Look at this watermelon, I've been growing it the whole time, and all of a sudden, the Midianites show up, and they steal their watermelon, and their peaches, and their strawberries, and all the good stuff, and the wheat, all over again. And then they leave, and they're like, all right, they left. I don't think they're coming back again, time after time. The cycle repeats. Each year, the Israelites thinking, maybe they won't come back next time. We'll keep putting in the work and experiencing no real fruit from the labor. So the people cry out to the Lord. Verse 7, the people cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites. Notice it wasn't on account of their sin. They're like, God, we got a problem here. The people, the Midianites, are stealing our food. That is our problem. We need justice. The Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. Okay? So let's think for a minute. They cried out, God, there's a bunch of people stealing our food. And other times in the book of Judges, God sends them a warrior. Boys and girls, what did God send them this time? A prophet. Okay? So they're crying out, God, there's an invading army stealing our food. And God says, hey, I've got a solution for you. I'll send you a pastor. God, that's not what we asked for. We don't want somebody that looks like Pastor Jason. We need a warrior, God. God says, I know what you need. You need a pastor. You need a prophet. There's a difference in biblical role of prophet and pastor, but for simplification purposes, we're going to go with it. So they are hiding from a foreign army in their caves while the foreign army is eating all their good food that they've worked on so hard, and God says, I'll send you a pastor. Boys and girls in box one, I need you to draw the people hiding in caves and a pastor preaching to them. There's an army everywhere, and yet, instead of sending a warrior, God sends them a pastor. Hiding in caves, army there, box one, pastor preaching to a bunch of people who are scared. And what does this pastor cry out? Verse 8, Lord sent a prophet to the people, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt. I brought you out of the house of slavery, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites or those in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. God looks at him and says, I already took you out of a worse situation than you're in right now. I led you, brought you into a land. I did this, I did this, I did this, and I asked you to obey me, and what have you done? You haven't. God tells them why they're in the problem. 
Now, notice what the text ends with. The text says, you have not obeyed my voice. The text does not say that the people got on their knees and they fell and bowed before the Lord and started worshiping him and obeying him. The text seems to suggest that they continued on in their pattern of disobedience after this. Look at the next verse. Verse 11. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth, which is a bush or a tree at Orpho, which belonged to Joash the Abrazite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. Okay, God has reminded them of their faithlessness and his faithfulness. He's given them a theological explanation to their suffering that they've brought upon themselves by serving false gods that cannot deliver. And he's, this could easily be the end for them. They don't deserve God's grace and deliverance. But God, who is rich in mercy, even while they disobeyed, sends a deliverer. Not because they deserve it. The deliverer is not sent because they repented. The deliverer is sent because of God's initiative. They did not earn the favor of God and God sending a deliverer. God sent a deliverer out of his own mercy and grace, which is something we're going to come back to later, but is a picture of what God has done for us in Christ while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were disobedient as the people of Israel, God sent Christ. Okay? And God communicates with Gideon who is doing something that we don't really totally understand. But what they did when they didn't have all the modern farming tools that we have today is that they took the wheat, and what they would do is they would go up to the high points on a hill where it would be super windy, and they would like smash the wheat, and then they would throw it up into the air, and if there was the right amount of wind, then the lightweight stuff that you can't really eat would like blow away, and the heavier stuff that you wanted to keep would sink down. So you wanted to do that like out in the open. That was the best of farming at that point. But instead of doing that, what Gideon is doing is he is basically in a hole in the ground stomping on the wheat. He's in an area where they would normally stomp on grapes and to make juice out of those, okay, to make that. And he's hiding there. He's not tossing things into the air and letting the lightweight stuff go away and the good stuff be kept. He is farming in an incredibly inefficient manner compared to the best methods of his day. But it's a whole lot more efficient than being dead. Okay? His alternative is if I do this where I ought to do it, they're either going to kill me and steal my food or just steal my food. So I'm going to do this hiding, and it's not going to work well. In Gideon's day, the complications of sin made many things in life incredibly difficult. This reminds me of how in the fall of man, God did not take away the command to work and keep the earth to Adam and Eve and fill it with sinless worshipers by multiplying. What God did was he allowed complications, frustrations, and thorns and pain to mark our work. So also here, as a result of their sin, they are not to stop farming. They just have to do it in a really difficult manner. Okay? Sometimes in life, when you don't do things God's way, it gets really, really hard. And that's one way in which God sometimes tries to get our attention. All right, so Gideon is there. He's staying alive. But it's not working very well for him as he's farming. But it beats being dead and having your food stolen. Okay, 
Text continues. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. As he's hiding in a bucket, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Okay, Gideon said to him, please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Great question that people ask all the time today. If God's really with me, why is suffering in my life? And where are all the wonderful things that our fathers recounted to us saying, did the Lord not bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? And Gideon's got to be thinking, man, I'm just trying to stay alive. Okay? He's just staying alive, doing his thing, trying to survive. And an angel shows up and says, you're going to deliver all of the people from this foreign army that greatly outnumber you and have done so every year. It's okay to be a chicken at this point. I think in reality, almost all of us would be. He wants to make sure, and that's the path of Gideon's life. So Gideon says, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my father's house, which, by the way, is probably an exaggeration. He actually seems to come from a reasonably good family. He has a number of servants, a number of things. In a day when things were not kept well, he seems to actually have a few things going for him, but he minimizes what God has given him in a pattern similar to what Moses did when God called Moses, by the way. The Lord said to him, I will be with you. Just as God has promised Joshua success based upon God's presence, and God has promised his people his presence in the Great Commission, that as we make disciples of the nations and baptize them and teach them all that he's commanded us, that he is with us through his spirit today, God promises Gideon his presence In the Old Testament, that was a somewhat rare thing. He says, I'm going to be with you, and you're going to strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, if I've now found favor in your sight, show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please don't depart from me until I come to you, bring out my present, and set it before you. And he said, I'll stay until you return. Okay. So Gideon went to his house. He prepared a young goat, unleavened cakes from uh, Ephra, or a bunch of flour. The meat he put in a basket, the broth he put in a pot. He brought them to the terebinth. He presented them. The angel of the Lord said, take the meat and the unleavened cakes, put them on the rock, pour the broth over them, and he did so. So Gideon's prepared essentially a feast during a time of famine. The angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that was his hand, and he touched the meat and the unleavened cakes, and fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes, and the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight, and Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. So this is a good thing for Gideon, except notice Gideon's reaction. Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, I've now seen the angel of the Lord face to face. Because in that time, it was always thought when you saw God, you were going to die. And he recognized there was something wrong with him, something right with God, and God in his grace. Though Gideon, deserving to die, does not die. Verse 23, the Lord said then, peace be to you. Do not fear, you shall not die. And Gideon built an altar to the Lord and called it, the Lord is peace. And to this day, it stands at Orpha, which belongs to the Abrazites. By the way, that to this day doesn't mean like today. When we read it, we mean when the book of Judges was written there, okay? So, God shows up, gives Gideon sign number one. Gideon builds an altar, worships the Lord. And it looks like it's battle time. But before he goes to battle with the nations, he's got to take care of business in his own home place. Look at verse 25. That night the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull 
on the second bowl, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has, and cut down the Asherah that is beside it, and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of the stronghold here with stones laid in due order. Now I want you to notice Gideon had always been living under idolatry. Gideon was not so good that he deserved God's favor and strength. Gideon was not this magic warrior who had always followed God in a pagan culture, and God was like, you're the man for the job. You're so awesome. No, Gideon had been living in a household of idolatry for a long time. He came from a pagan family that did not worship the Lord. He was an unlikely candidate who was a little bit scared, as we'll see. He built there instead, beside it, build an altar to the Lord your God on top of the stronghold with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull, your father's bull, and lay it and make it an offering, a burnt offering to the Lord with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. So take your father's stuff, tear down his idols, chop them up, and burn in honor of the Lord. Not an easy task. God had already appeared to him, so what does Gideon the chicken do? He does it with his ten servants, which means he actually had some level of power that he had not noted earlier. At night, he took ten of his servants, as the Lord had told him, but because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. We're not going to read verses 28 through 35 right now. The people essentially get mad because the idol's being torn down. Gideon's father says, hey, if Baal is all that impressive of a God, Baal can handle his own business. Baal can take care of my son if he needs to. And the people say, okay, that seems like a reasonable plan. They begin to follow Gideon when Baal doesn't take care of Gideon. And they gather up. And we get to verse 36. When God's spirit has already come upon Gideon, he's gathered some troops. And we get to the most famous event probably in Gideon's life. Verse 36. Here we have Gideon and his rugs. Verse 36, Gideon said to the Lord, or Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, if God then, behold, I'm laying a fleece of wool or a rug on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone and it's dry on the ground, you shall then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand as you have said. God, you already said it once. But this is kind of a big deal. I need to make sure that you said it. So here's the way, God, that I'm going to make you talk to me. Okay, Be very careful about this. And it was so. When he rose early next morning, squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. God made it abundantly clear. The ground is dry, the rug is wet, exactly as Gideon had said. That should have been enough. Actually, the first should have been enough. But it wasn't, because Gideon's a chicken like us. And when God tells us to do things that we don't want to do, man, we need a bunch of signs. Now, God tells you to do something you want to do, you're like, man, God, half of your word is enough. But God, if it's hard and I don't want to do it, I need a couple of signs. God, it's easy and I want to do it. Oh, yeah. God, you need me to be a missionary on the beach for the rest of my life in a tropical vacation in a ten-bedroom home. Yep, I'm there. I don't need any word. I don't need any sign. God, you want me to proclaim the gospel to an impoverished people on the other side of the world? Here's my signs. We're the same like, we're just like Gideon. We're chickens too. Gideon needs another sign. He said to God, God, please don't let your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Liar, he's going to speak again. Okay, God, just one more time, please, pretty please, ice cream, cherry on top, work with me here, God, patience, God. 
Let me try just once more with the fleece. Let it this time, in case this is a weird magic carpet, let the magic carpet this time be dry and the ground be wet. And God did so that night, and it was dry on the fleece only, on all the ground there was dew. And Gideon's like, all right, God's given me three signs now. First, the eating of the stuff with fire, and now this rug twice. All right, this is God. Text continues. By the way, boys and girls, box two, divide the box in half. One half, put a ground that is dry and a wet rug, and the other half, wet ground, dry rug. Okay? Divide box two in half, one side, wet ground, dry rug, the other part of it, dry ground, wet rug. God did miracle twice to get Gideon's attention. And I'm going to come back to this at our end, but I want to go ahead and note it right now. This is not a pattern in the Bible that we are instructed to use. The Bible does not tell you to be like Gideon and lay out your fleece. It's very important we read the Bible, particularly a story in the Bible, that we do not make every detail in the story something that we ought to do. Some details are details. Other details are actions where people take that are not honorable. Okay, so here's a little point for you. Keep this in mind. Anytime you're reading a story in the Bible, a description is not a prescription. What is described is not always something you are to do. What is described in the Bible is not always something you are called to do. And in this case, Gideon's actions of laying out a fleece are incredibly famous, but not a pattern that we are commanded to obey and to follow. All right, chapter 7. Then Drubal, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and camped beside the spring of Herod, and the camp of Midian was north of them by the middle of Morah in the valley. So we get some geographic locations and battle stuff. The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. So now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned and 10,000 remained. So Gideon's going to be outnumbered already to start off with like 135,000 to 32,000. Okay? And, and they don't have like air power. Okay? This isn't good odds to start off with. The other dudes had camels. Not good for them. And God's like, hey, Gideon, you got too many troops. Now, some of you that are students of military history you know that it might not be a good idea if fearful people go to war because when they start retreating in the time of battle, others might actually follow their momentum. And it might be better to have people that are actually committed and not going to retreat during a time of battle. So this looks like it might be a reasonable battle strategy. Not a great one, but might be a reasonable battle strategy. But ultimately, this isn't about a battle being fought strategically. This is a battle that's to be glorifying to God when God gets the credit for accomplishing what his people could never do on their own. Verse 4, the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. And any one of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And any one of whom I say to you, this one shall not go, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps the water with his tongue like a dog, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouth, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, With the 300 men who lapped, I will save you. 
and give the Midianites into your hand and let all the others go, every man to his home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets, and he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, retained the 300 men, and the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. Okay, now, God has thinned the group down to 300. Some of you can't picture exactly how. That's okay. This is not about 9,700 men that did it wrong. This isn't like 300 of them were super brave and super good and they knew exactly what they were to do and the other great majority did not. This is about God communicating through Gideon in a way that only God is going to get the credit for only what God can do. This is verse 2. At this point, if I'm Gideon, I've got 300 men and there's 135,000 of them. I need some encouragement as well. Okay, Gideon's at least been following God here, whittling down his troops, and now he's grossly outnumbered. God says to Gideon in verse 9, the Lord said to him, arise, go down to the camp, for I've given it into your hand. Okay, that, that should be enough, but like us, Gideon is a chicken. If you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant. If you're afraid. Yes, I'm afraid, God. Okay. And you shall go down, and you shall hear what they say, and afterwards your hand shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Gideon didn't really ask for a sign, but when God offered one this time, he was like, God, I'll take that sign. Okay? I'm not going to ask anymore because I said I wasn't going to ask anymore, but if you're offering one, yeah, I'm asking. I'm asking to see it, God. So here we go. This is fascinating, by the way. This might be my favorite part of the story of Gideon. It's a part that I don't ever remember that's actually here. Okay? You shall go down and hear. Then he went down with Purah's servant to the outpost of the armed men who were in the camps and the Midianites and the Malachites and all the people to the east lay all along the valley like locusts in abundance or like ants that are swarming. Okay, they can't even count them. Boys and girls, they're looking and he's like, all right, the first thing I see, God, is a big, 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 in fact, I can't even count the problem. And he gets to the edge. Like locusts, and they're camels without number, and that is on the sand on the seashore in abundance. And Gideon came, as he's sneaking up to the camp, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. And he said, Behold, I dreamed a dream, and behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it, so that it fell flat and turned upside down so that the tent lay flat. Okay, so let me give you the picture. One dude, these guys are like hiding in the dark, Gideon and his buddy are hiding in the dark, and they hear a story. And one guy from Midianites turns to another and says, I had a dream. And in my dream, a loaf of bread knocked down our tent entirely, crushed our tent. Okay, a loaf of bread crushed the tent. And the other guy doesn't turn to him and said, dude, you ate something weird last night. Okay, or what have you been doing? He doesn't look at him in any of those things. Gideon's like sitting on the sideline listening. And here's what, here's what the other buddy tells him. Okay, fascinating. Loaf of bread destroyed a tent. And his comrade answered, This is no other than the sword of Gideon and the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given him into his hand Midian in all the camp. Okay? So they sneak up on the camp. They hear two dudes talking. Guy one says, A loaf of bread. I dreamed a dream. A loaf of bread knocked down my tent. And the other guy says, Uh oh. That's not good. Obviously, God is working because nobody looks at a dream like that and says, hey, that's Gideon. Don't even know who Gideon is, really, or maybe they knew he was leading the war, the group, but a loaf of bread knocks down a tent. That's Gideon. God's going to do something. Gideon's like, all right, I got it, God. 
Notice what Gideon stops to do before he goes to battle. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped. Gideon has now done what is right. And having worshipped, he's about to obey. His obedience was not separated from his worship. His worship was not separated from his obedience. He worshipfully obeys the Lord. He returned to the camp of Israel and he said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. And he divided the 300 men into three companies and put trumpets in the hands of all of them and empty jars with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, Look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me then blow the trumpets also on every side of the camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. Boys and girls, in box three, I want you to draw a chicken listening to two soldiers Talk about a loaf of bread. A chicken listening to two soldiers talk about a loaf of bread. By the way, have you noticed that when God wants them to know something unusual, he has a very precise way of getting his point across? There is no ambiguity with what God wants. It is very clear. All right, so Gideon and the hundred men who were with him, there's two other companies, came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle of the watch of the night when they had just set up the watch and they blew the trumpets, smashed the jars that were in their hands and the three companies blew the trumpets, broke the jars. They held in their left hand the torches and in their right hands the trumpets to blow and they cried out a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Okay, which by the way, they weren't even holding a sword at this point. Maybe they had it strapped on, but it's like, hey, trumpet and torch. What a great battle plan. Every man stood in his place around the camp, and all the army ran, and they cried out and fled. And when they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army, and the army fled as far as Beth Shittah towards Zerah, as far as the border of Abel-Mahoah by Tabith. And the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali and Asher and from all Manasseh, and they pursued after Midian. So here's the picture. Here's the battle plan, okay? Gideon's got his battle plan. He's communicated it to him. They blow the trumpets. They smash the jars, and then they stand up. I'll say stand up because the text actually says stand by. But realistically, it, it, it'd be really good to actually just picture them like popping up their camping chairs and using their torches to keep the mosquitoes away and eating popcorn while they watch the Midianites fight against themselves. God was doing something that they could never receive the credit for. That is the type of God that we serve. We get to serve him. He doesn't require our help. He just happens by his grace to involve us in his glorious plan. They rout him. Gideon handles some conflict in the beginning of chapter 3 fairly well. Then the middle of chapter 3, he doesn't handle it so well, which is a foreshadowing of what his son's going to do and that we'll we'll look at next week. And then verse 22 of chapter 8 rolls around. To the victor go the spoils, and the spoils are going to spoil the victor. Midian of Israel said to Gideon, rule over us, you and your son and your grandson, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. And Gideon said to them, I won't rule over you, and my son will not either. The Lord will rule over you. You did it, Gideon. Great response. Theologically precise. Words of his lips were marvelous, but watch the actions of his life that follow. 
Gideon said, let me make one small request of you. Every one of you give me some earrings from the spoil. They had golden earrings. They were Ishmaelites. They answered, we'll willingly give them. And he spread a cloak and every man threw in the earrings of his spoil. And the weight of the golden earrings that was requested was 1,700 shekels of gold besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants, the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian and besides the collars that were around the necks of the camels. And Gideon made an ephod, which was a priestly garment. He put it in his city in Ophrah, and all the Israel whored after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and his family. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel. They raised their heads no more, and the land had rest 40 years in the days of Gideon. So the people take the good treasure of God and turn it into an idol. They pursue the wrong things. What began in this text with idolatry and him tearing down idols in his own family's household, ends with him leading the people into idolatry. And yet God allows them 40 years of peace in his own great mercy. He gave a great answer, but his life didn't match with the words of his lips about king. He begins to act like a king. He even names his son Abimelech, my father is king. And he takes the treasures of God's mighty actions and builds something that becomes an idol out of it. Okay, four quick points. One, I want you to notice throughout this text, it was God's mercy that changed lives. When you're reading through this text, it is not be like Gideon. It is, Lord, help me not to be like him. God's mercy shows up. Boys and girls in box four, I want you to draw God being gentle with a chicken. Not like a person that is a chicken with an actual chicken, okay? Because God is gentle and gracious and compassionate. They didn't get it all right at the start or the end. Gideon was a scared chicken just like us. God sent them a sermon, and they were struggling, and we don't see them repenting, yet God sent them a deliverer. God acts according to his mercy, a picture of Christ. As Romans 5, 8 says, God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Or as Ephesians 2, 1 through 4 says, though we are dead in our transgressions and sin, God is rich in mercy. We are not deserving of the mercy of God that changes the course of our lives. When we read through the book of Judges, we should be reminded of God's richness of mercy. We should also be warned that success and blessings can easily lead to idolatry. Just like the people of Moses and Aaron's time used the treasures gained from the people of Egypt to make a golden calf that they bowed down before, so Gideon uses the treasure gained by God's deliverance to become an idol. Idolatry is as dangerous or more dangerous in times of success than seasons of struggle. It is incredibly easy for you And certainly for me, to take what God has intended as a blessing and let it become an idol. An idol is anything that consumes all of our attention and affection greater than the Lord. We can take what God has given us for good and turn it into an idol just as they did. So ask God to search your heart and show you the ways you're prone to turn his blessings into idols. Thirdly, God communicates clearly and graciously. Now, again, here's the warning. God does not tell us to lay out a fleece in our life. 
This is not a New Testament pattern of God's works. It's not what God tells us to do to seek his direction. God wants us to have a faith that said, God said it. I know what he said because he said it in his word. Therefore, that settles it. God doesn't want us to be a chicken that requires continual convincing and just one more sign, please, God, like Gideon. How Gideon received God's communication is not a pattern for us. But what we do see is how frequently God is gracious and communicates in a way that they knew exactly what the Lord wanted. The majority of the time in the New Testament, when people want to know what God wants, they look at what he's already said in his word, seeking godly counsel and praying. They don't ask for super signs, okay? God has given us an entire book in the Bible called the book of Proverbs to help us use wisdom to know how God wants us to act in a given situation. God has already communicated almost everything he wants out of us. But we can know that God in his character communicates clearly and graciously, but we are not to be laying out fleeces. Instead, we should be acting upon faith in what God has already said and the sign that God has already given us. Instead of asking for a new sign to know what God wants for us or to know that God is with us, we need to remember what he has already said and given us in a sign, and God has given us a sign to remember. Our deacons are going to come forward. We're going to celebrate that sign. That sign of the Lord's Supper. We have a sign that God has given us of his love. Remember Gideon's initial question, God, if you're really with us, why is all this stuff happening? And God displays his presence and his power. Today, God has displayed his presence and his power, and he has given us a sign for us to remember. Instead of us demanding our own sign of God's love and power, he's commanded that we regularly take the sign and symbol of his work and power on our behalf. That sign is the Lord's Supper. It is communion. Where we take a piece of bread symbolizing his body given for us, the juice symbolizing his blood shed for us at the cross, and we take this sign remembering God's gracious mercy on our behalf. Dinkins, if you'll come forward, receive the trays. They're going to distribute, and as they distribute the elements by passing those trays down the row, let me encourage you, take the bread and the cup there together. You'll notice that some of them are labeled in blue letters, gluten-free. For those of you that need that, please take that. For those that don't, please take a different one um, as a sign. We're going to take this sign. You guys can go ahead and distribute, and as they do so, let me encourage you, think on the sign of the Lord's Supper. Think on these elements. We don't need to lay out a fleece to see if God is with us. We don't need to set up our own sign. He's already given us this symbol. So reflect on the sign and symbol of the Lord's Supper quietly during this time, and I'll lead us to consume them in a moment.